Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With healthcare costs representing 18% of the U.S. economy and President Trump's promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act still outstanding, countered by Democrats pushing Medicare for all, the stakes for healthcare are higher than ever. Brownstein corporate shareholder Mike King moderates a discussion on potential changes to key healthcare laws, the future of healthcare cost containment, and how these elements will impact the healthcare industry and businesses generally. Panelists include Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless and Strategic Advisor Barry Jackson. My name is Mike King. I'll be your moderator this evening and wearing uh, purple because I'm neither uh, red nor blue, at least not in this role here this evening. And uh, we have with us a a very special group of folks from Washington, D.C., straight off the airplane on my far right, uh, apropos for Barry Jackson. Uh, Barry's one of our strategic advisors whom the New York Times has called one of the most influential figures in Washington and a force in Republican politics for more than 20 years. Forbes named Barry to their list of the world's seven most powerful conservatives among many accomplishments in a distinguished career in public service. Barry served as Chief of Staff for Speaker of the House John Boehner from 2010 uh, to June 2012 during the passage of the ACA, Affordable Care Act. Uh, and was Speaker Boehner's first chief of staff from 1991 through 2001. Barry is one of only two people in United States history to have served as chief of staff to the Speaker of the House and senior staff to the President of the United States. Um, We also have with us Kate McCandless, policy director at Brownstein. And with more than 16 years of legislative, regulatory, and political experience, Kate has advised clients across the healthcare spectrum, including physician organizations, hospitals, consumer organizations, healthcare IT, pharmaceutical and biotech companies uh, with regard to federal healthcare programs and policies. Uh, and little old me, I'm a healthcare transactional attorney uh, here at Brownstein doing predominantly general corporate healthcare transactional structuring. So with those introductions out of the way, on to the fun part. So uh, the topic du jour, and when we planned this eight weeks ago, uh, it was very difficult to know where the healthcare debate in America would lie. Uh, At that time, uh, Repeal and Replace was going through one of its, uh, I won't say last gaps, these are the characters in front of you, you know us now. Uh, And then here's where Repeal and Replace stood when we were planning this program. Uh, And uh, as you can see, there's a, a emergency service vehicle going off ramp trying to make its way across the chasm to 50 votes. Uh, and right below it says, third time's the charm or the clinical definition of insanity. Uh, and obviously the vehicle didn't make it all the way to the other side. Uh, and just to show Barry, I'm not, I'm not just picking on one side of the aisle. Um, we also have a lot of fun going on with Bernie out there stumping for Medicare for all. Uh, and this is becoming increasingly a, a cause celeb among Democrats, and we, we'll spend a little time this evening talking about how realistic that is. Uh, so with that preface, uh, wanted to let my far more um, experienced hands from Washington, D.C. weigh in on uh, the state of the healthcare debate in America today. Uh, knowing that we've got a, a really mixed group here, we're going to try not to speak in acronyms, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite rules. Uh, one of my former regulatory partners is here this evening, and 
Um, we had to impose a, a swear jar for acronyms in healthcare because, <laughs> you know, sometimes we get in the habit of ACA and AHCA and all that jargon. And uh, there you go. It's important we're all on the same page. So, Kate, what's your take on the current state of affairs uh, on the Hill, having just flown in? Well, the Hill is uh, intensely focused right now on uh, in the House. They're at, in recess. Uh, and that's wonderful. And the Senate is engaging in an activity called the Votorama this evening. So they will be working late into the night. But except for the occasional uh, potential amendment on the budget that might relate to health care, no one is thinking about health care today. And I think that's something that is very different from the eight weeks ago or so that you mentioned when we first started talking about this. There is definitely a fatigue uh, on the Hill as it relates to health care. And, um, you know, whether we're talking about uh, drug pricing or we're talking about the opioid crisis or we're talking about the cost sharing reductions or we're talking about the executive order or we're talking, I mean, it's just literally exhausting. And so for a few brief moments, we are not talking about health care and it's nice. <laughs> so uh, unless you're Senator Cassidy, because I, I watch my morning news while attempting to exercise, never enough. And uh, Senator Cassidy's on Morning Joe this morning uh, being quizzed about the future of repeal and replace. And he insists that, well, you know, two of those Republican votes were objecting on solely procedural grounds and, you know, repeal and replace could come back. Thoughts? So um, I think it's a couple of things to put this in context. First is that um, the Senate effort to get to 50 votes so they could move to reconciliation and and deal with the House passage of a repeal bill. Um, there was a single reason that it didn't happen, and that was Senator McCain. And it, there is a story, I believe it to be true, that when he came back from his treatments, he was sitting with Mark Salter, a longtime chief of staff of his, um, not so anymore, but he's still the closest person to to McCain. And they're frantically working on his final autobiography. And Mark asked Senator McCain, what is the last chapter? And Senator McCain replied, I was a maverick till the end. And Mark said, well, that means you need to vote against uh, the motion to proceed. You, you, you can't do this. It has all kinds of things wrapped up into it that you didn't like. And until that moment, um, indications were he was probably going to vote yes just because it's a, it's a team sport and it's a team effort and it didn't commit to a bill. And he went and he talked to Chuck Schumer before he even talked to his own leader, McConnell. So I just say that that one of the things, and, you're, and, and when we're dealing with what's next on health care, when we're dealing with what's going to happen with a tax bill, especially in the Senate because the margins are so small and because you have a White House that um, is, is not fully engaged in a policy process in the way that Congress is used to a White House being engaged, these little things are going to pop up and are going to have a huge impact. And the last thing I'll say, just to that point, bring it back to the health care bill, is also this this week. So um, um, Senator Alexander, who's the chairman of the health committee in the Senate, and Patty Murray, um, senator from Washington State, Democrat, member of the leadership, former budget committee chair, 
came and announced that they had come to a compromise to deal with the health insurance payment issues. And in the course of 24 hours, President Trump took three different positions on that announcement. So if you're Alexander and Murray, you probably don't pay attention to that. You knew what you were trying to do. But if you're the rest of the members of the conferences, and if you're particularly in the leadership trying to figure out, well, should we bring it to the floor? Should we not bring it to the floor? Where exactly are we? That's the environment we're in, and that's why... I think, you know, to Kate's point, nobody is seriously thinking about this right now because nobody knows what the next step is. So, uh, again, my due diligence being uh, Morning Joe and surfing the Internet, um, my impression of Murray Alexander, Alexander Murray, was uh, lovely. Bipartisanship, uh, kumbaya, people are, are trying to rally around, doing the right thing for the American people. Uh, but not to be overly cynical, uh, are there players in both caucuses that would rather see the other side go down in flames and what's somewhat referred to as a, a Band-Aid bill, Alexander Murray, uh, to solve for some of the, the problems, imminent problems? Um, is the Band-Aid not politically advantageous to the extremes in either side, and is that why it's doomed to failure? Well, I think that the Band-Aid is actually in the long run maybe a little bit more advantageous to the Republicans than they have given it credit for. Um, I think it's, it's pretty well documented that whether they pass the bill today and fund these cost-sharing reduction payments for the next three years or whether they wait until December when it's maybe a little more politically palatable to do this, it won't impact the premiums that you all are getting ready to see on November 1st, when open enrollment starts and people are, are looking at their exchanges or get their letters uh, from their insurance carriers, those rates are baked. And, in, and Republicans are getting ready to own this cost increase, whether they like it or not, because there's a faction of the party that thinks they should have repealed the, the law and should have moved forward, and then this wouldn't be an issue. You know. And then they've got a lot of detractors on the other side that say that the Trump administration is trying to break the law any way it can, and so this is the result. So there, there's not any immediacy for them to patch this, to put this Band-Aid on. However, the flip side of the Alexander Murray deal is that it allows for states to have a lot more flexibility in the way that they design their plans and in the way that they request their waivers from HHS from uh, for the for the ACA uh, compliant plans. And so having that flexibility and at the state level being able to change the way that you're designing your plans and figuring out how best to serve your population I think really fits with the Republican message, but it's just a matter of if they're willing to take both sides of this coin. Well, and another thing is is that when you talk particularly about what Alexander and Murray are trying to do, remember that the population that they're focused on is a relatively small part of the total population. And that's another challenge with, with trying to do health care right now is for, you know, all of the fire and fury around the previous debate with this, you were talking about such a small portion of the population. Unlike the tax bill, which impacts everybody, this health care bill is, I don't know what the number is, but we're somewhere like 11% of the population is all we're talking about. So unless you're in the industry, my guess is there's nobody in this room that this debate really has a personal impact on your health care. And so members have got to weigh that part of this, given everything else they've got going on. 
So to take half a step back, uh, Kate, maybe you can elaborate on, um, we're, we've jumped right to inside baseball. Um, the cost sharing reductions, um, there are those on uh, one side of the aisle, uh, the president claiming no more bailouts for insurance companies. Uh, then there are those on the Democratic side of the aisle saying uh, this is cruel and this is sabotaging the individual markets. So to take half a step back, um, Set, set the backdrop for us, please, Kate. Well, I think it's probably best to have Barry really set the table because it's because of Barry that um, that we're having this fight in the first place. Um, now, now. now. <laughs> but fundamentally, this is a result of the, uh, the lawsuit that the House of Representatives brought against the Obama administration for improperly making payments to the insurance companies uh, that were not appropriated for. And the history... Uh, will show, and I encourage you if you have time and are interested to read the Attorney General's review. Um, it's about three pages. It's really well written, and it will tell you exactly why they've come to the conclusion that they can no longer make these payments. Uh, there, there are two specific and separate accounts in the Affordable Care Act. One of them provides for tax credits for individuals uh, to purchase their premiums. The other uh, is, is applicable to these cost-sharing reductions and their payments that are made directly to the insurance companies so that the insurance companies can cover the costs that they lose when they offer uh, lower out-of-pocket costs and co-pays to uh, individuals that, would, that otherwise would qualify for these. Um, the Obama administration made these payments out of a different fund after the House uh, decided and, and Congress decided not to appropriate funds for them, and they made them improperly. Uh, the, the district court found that to be true. And uh, so it, it's not inconsistent, I think, that the Department of Justice has now decided that with no moving legislative vehicle, and until you know yesterday or the day before when we had Alexander Murray, there was no moving legislative vehicle. So absent any sort of activity where the, the Congress and the administration could, could come to an agreement on how to move forward, it's been decided and, and, that they can't make these payments. And, and I can tell you 100% when the speaker and what's called the um, bipartisan legal advisory group, which is the top two Democrat leaders, the top three Republican leaders, or the other way if the Democrats were in the majority, took this case on. They had gone through three other cases ahead of this because it was clear this was a constitutional issue. It wasn't about health care. It was about the powers of the executive branch versus the powers of the legislative branch. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to risk wading into this. But in order to bring case, you have to have standing. And the courts throughout our country's history have been reluctant to give the Congress standing against the executive branch because almost always they viewed it as a political fight, and that was not what the court's challenge was. In this particular case, what the House argued, the, the policy was never part of the argument. If you go back and you look at the, the case, it was that only— the Congress could have standing because only the Congress's powers were being infringed upon um, by the executive. And the court ruled that was the case. The Obama administration immediately said they were going to appeal that case. The election happened. And so there was a stay put on it, thinking that, well, there's going to be a health care bill that will resolve this and it will make the question moot in front of the court. 
And let me go back to your point. How's that for about... a non-lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you must have audited constitutional <laughs> law. That's not bad. The point about this being cruel, um, there, there are two, again, two separate functions within the ACA. One that requires the insurance companies to provide uh, options for covering these out-of-pocket costs or, or reducing these out-of-pocket costs for low-income individuals. That requirement stays in place. The only thing that's going away are the payments back to the insurance companies to cover that spread. Now, ultimately, does that mean higher premiums for everyone else? Probably. But the, the argument that this is cruel or that this is attacking low-income individuals, I think, is, is not exactly what is happening here. So uh, I'll try and play the middleman. Uh, the subsidies going to the insurance companies uh, going away will result in premium increases for all. Uh, those who are low-income at the very bottom end receive tax credits mm -hmm. under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and the government will actually spend $6 billion more because of this action to pay out more tax credits. So the, the folks at the very bottom receiving tax credits will be okay thanks to those increased tax credits. It's this next tier up who, if you want to use the word cruel, they'll certainly be impacted. That's absolutely true. But, but it, it, Mike, it raises this issue why healthcare has gotten more and more difficult as every year goes by is that what we're debating is this small part and so is it going to cost six billion more or, or will there be savings if you get rid of the payments the bigger issue is is that you've got these hodgepodge of policies that have been put into place over several years ACA tried to take it all steer it one way for how the nation's healthcare should work Republicans and frankly some Democrats would argue it hasn't worked it either hasn't brought the savings and it hasn't brought the coverage putting more people into the risk pools as it was supposed to on the left you've got people saying Clearly, there are all kinds of people being left behind, and insurance companies and pharma companies are making all this money. It's just an argument to go to Medicare for all. And so when we get stuck in these micro-debates that are reflective of the larger issue, it, it's, it's the old adage that there's no fighting more intense than that which occurs over the smallest matter in a faculty lounge. And that's what's happening in Congress today, is that you get the smaller and smaller pieces of this big picture, and the battles get more and more intense. But let's also not forget that Congress can also solve this. They can solve it by making the appropriation annually. They can solve it by making a permanent appropriation. They can solve it by patching it the way Alexander Murray's going to attempt to. So it's not as if this is something where the administration's just pulled the rug out and has left them with no options. In fact, this is what the lawsuit was about. They wanted to have the option. They have the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. Well, the Trump supporters are quick to point out that he's uh, perhaps crazy like a fox. So you know, in doing what he did last Friday, um, He's forcing the hand of Congress to either put repeal and replace back on the table, which folks just can't seem to let go of, um, or we get the Band-Aid solution from Murray Alexander. Uh, Robert Torricelli, the torch, from a former United States Senator from New Jersey, was on, and his comment on Alexander Murray was, uh, we Democrats, we just care too much. We should let the Republicans own what the president did and 
let people suffer, and then the Republicans will suffer at the polls. Remarkable candor, but he's not in the Senate anymore. Thoughts? So I, I, the Kate's point and your point about crazy like a fox, there, there is a truth. I mean, the Congress at any point in time, they could pass repeal and replace if they wanted to. There's all kinds of things they could do. Putting my old White House hat on, if I'm being crazy like a fox and if I am calling the Congress's bluff, um, for all kinds of reasons, the ability of Congress to walk and chew gum at the same time is severely challenged. So when they're in the middle of this most of their own making, but how to fund the government for the remainder of the year, how to deal with the debt ceiling, how to deal with Iran, how to do a tax bill, how to do the chip funding. I mean, there's a, the disaster funding bill. All of this is stuff is there. If you're sitting in the White House, do you go, yeah, why not? Let's just throw another you know, log on the fire. Or you go, whoa. Eventually, when Congress screws up, and it's all my Congress, they're all Republicans, no matter what people would say, um, it's going to bounce back on the president and his ability to lead. So I, you know, maybe it was crazy like a fox, and maybe this brings the Congress to its senses, but I don't think so on either account. <laughs> All right. Well, as long as we're talking about um, crazy like a fox, Bernie, Medicare for all. Uh, how feasible is Medicare for all? I think there are people who think it's very feasible. Um, I, I know that there are uh, a number of, of studies and, and supporters will tout them all the time that say that this is ultimately where we're going, that this is the answer, the silver bullet for all of health care costs. This is the only thing that will bring down health care costs. Uh, I mean, I think that the truth is it also will cost a lot of money, um, and that's not something right now that people seem to have an appetite for. So I think the interesting part about it is how quickly, as you pointed out in your opening statements, it's become the litmus test for Democrats across, uh, you know, across the, the House and the Senate who most of whom have, I think, presidential aspirations. It's not just Bernie. Um, you know, he introduced the bill. I think there were 16 senators on the bill, all 16 of them presumably candidates uh, for president. And so I think that, you know, it's it's really become, it, it's, it's been interesting to, for me to see from a moment like this where he was standing alone on a stage to a moment where, uh, you know, there's a p pretty significant uh, number of Democrats who are signed on to this as being, you know, the future. And, and if, you know... Um Someone would accuse me of wearing a tinfoil hat and being right wing crazy, but uh, if you, I've seen it. yeah, she's seen it. Uh, <laughs> if, but if, but in serious, if you go back to the creation of Medicare, this debate was happening at that point of time also because there was um, a group of individuals that thought the United States is a is a rich, successful country, and why wouldn't Healthcare for all be part of what we give the people. And for political reasons, budget reasons, they decided not to do it that way. And you can go back over these, you know, last 50 some years of this, and it's it's fascinating. Some of the lions of the left in candid moments we'll talk about. We're going to get there. We're going to do it step by step by step, which then makes all my conservative friends all freak out and I told you so. This is what they were up to. So this is kind of like the natural endpoint of what you know, the Lyndon Johnson, Ted Kennedy school of the world, where they always had been. Have we uh, heard anything yet about funding streams for Medicare for All? 
where the dollars come from? I don't know that they are as committed um, to exactly where that's going to come from. You know, I think that really this is a concept right now about fairness uh, and about, you know, providing. Um, but, you know, back to Barry's point about, uh, you know, incremental. I think that what Bernie has done very successfully is he has made a place in the debate for someone to talk about incremental, for someone to talk about Medicare buy-ins or, um, you know, expansion to certain populations. And, you know, before it was A or B. It was Medicare for all or nothing. You know, we flirted with the public option uh, in ACA. We flirted with it before in uh, in Hillary Care. But here we are you know, with the, the, the sound people, uh, you know, the more moderates of the party, really putting forth, uh, you know, some proposals around incremental change. And that does make folks on the right really, really nervous. And, and, and it, both the, the second term of President Bush first term of President Obama, while they were both of them trying to put together what health care bills were, it was fascinating because in both administrations, part of the debate was if you move to a Medicare for all type of system, what are we going to do about employer provided? Because there was a great fear, and I think it's still a legitimate budget fear, that all of these legacy industries that have built in these massive liabilities on both pensions and and um, retiree health care, well, hell yeah. If I get to just dump it on the back of the taxpayers and onto the public dole, I'm going to do that in a heartbeat. And and both administrations had a wrestle with how do you how do you deal with that? And that that issue is not going away. And I guess what Kate was talking about, ultimately, it's funding stream and budget. You know, there's all kinds of things we want. It's who's going to pay for them. So it's fair to say the U.S. healthcare system is a bit of a Rube Goldberg-like contraption at this point in time, and you have to go back decades in history to identify why we have employer-based healthcare. Uh, but to avert the pedantic history lesson, we'll shift gears toward um, the demonstration projects for accountable care organizations and bundling. Uh, so ACOs, accountable care organizations. Uh, which essentially take a, a population pool and take a, a fixed number per live in the pool and then try to manage their health care within that number. Bundling, um, unlike, say, the purchase of an automobile where you buy a car, you don't buy a tire and a carburetor and a hood and a light, and then it's on you to put it all together and be your own car manager. Uh, bundling gives one bundled rate to all the care providers involved in an incident of healthcare. So there are a couple of bundling experiments that are ongoing. Um, one with knee replacements, which I, I hope I won't need, but I fear I will someday. Uh, and there's a cardiac bundling experiment ongoing. So um, while the Affordable Care Act and the Republican alternatives to it uh, talk about healthcare reform, my opinion, they're really about how you pay for your health care, not necessarily how healthcare is delivered to you. And both of them make some nods toward delivery, uh, like the demonstration projects. What is the future, in your opinion, for ACOs and bundling in the Trump administration? Should all the many healthcare uh, business folks in the audience this evening be planning for broad rollout or broad scale back of rollout attempts? Well, I think um, 
you know, this was one of your point is one of the criticisms of, of ACA was that while we talk about it being health reform, it's really the payment part of the reform that we dealt with. And, and there wasn't as much delivery system reform as I, I think most people wanted to see. And they were hoping that once we got through ACA, there would be an opportunity to really look at some of the demonstration projects that came out of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and maybe roll some of those out. You know, the secretary has very broad authority to implement uh, pro demonstration programs and, and, and implement them broadly if they are shown to provide higher quality care or achieve a certain amount of savings. And so the interesting thing about CMMI, however, is that it got slowly started. There were a lot of projects that were proposed and were rolled back. Uh, just recently, the, the uh, CMMI announced that they were going to permanently withdraw the Part B drug demo, which caused a lot of angst over the last uh, two years, and many uh, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill pushed back against the administration for it. So despite the fact that it is the one agency that is supposed to have a little bit more flexibility, it's had a difficult time getting some of its uh, demonstration projects really fully implemented. That being said, um, I think that the bundling uh, demonstration has gone extremely well. I think they're very pleased with the participants, with the data, and I do I do think that that's something that we will see. You know, they there was an attempt earlier to try and roll it out in a more mandatory way uh, that didn't sit well with providers. Obviously, they don't like to be told what to do, and so uh, there was some some pushback. And in fact, Secretary Price himself said uh, that the the purpose of a demonstration is to have volunteers, and they shouldn't be made mandatory. So we'll see if that. Uh, is is in fact the way that they roll it out. But I have heard that they are very pleased with the with the joint bundle specifically, and uh, and so I do expect to see more activity, uh, you know, sort of modeled around that particular bundle. So other than uh, the volunteers being allowed to truly volunteer, and and perhaps many of them opt out, which has budgetary implications for the projected savings from these demonstration projects. Um, you guys aren't seeing these uh, overtly, at least, politicized on the Hill yet? And occasionally, they can be. Um, you know, it's interesting. Republicans were quite skeptical of CMMI when it was introduced, and it was a democratic concept. It was in the ACA. You know, they felt that the secretary would have too broad of an authority. Uh, and they, they worked for years to try and put guardrails around the program. And then suddenly, when the administration changes, you view this particular agency in a much different way. And so um, I think that there, you know, the people are interested to see what the focus of CMMI will be under this administration. You know, I anticipate, although it, it, we haven't seen anything yet, but I anticipate there being a shift in focus to the Medicaid portion of CMMI. Um, you know, given Administrator Verma's background, I think that it's more likely that they will try and find savings through the Medicaid program and allow states a lot more flexibility um, than, than previously, where we mostly focused on Medicare demonstrations. And an and, and opportunity where this could, um, the, the issue of the demonstration projects and what states are doing, um, we're on the cusp of it potentially being a very front and center issue with 30 plus governor's races about to launch on our heads. And in the past, it's been interesting because you've seen these moments um, in, in, you know, payments were one part of it or, um, you know, the, the peril of Pauline life and death struggles of HSAs uh, or, or Medicare Advantage. And you always had this sense in Washington that, 
well, this must be something that's going to ca- catch the state house's attention, and they're going to pick it up. But for by and large, except for the ACA original battle, the states have it. And so it's going to be interesting, this dynamic of 18, um, which, which the Democrats will be trying to carry the election as the referendum on President Trump and policies. But if you're a Republican governor and you try to implement ACA, and now you're faced with potentially a more friendly HHS who can give you more leeway to do things, it'll be interesting to see what, what pops up out of that. I, I don't have great hope, but it is a potential. It's something to watch. Well, my editorial comment, and there are uh, any number of you in the audience who are involved in chronic care and the continuum of care for chronic patients who comprise an enormous percentage of our healthcare spend in this country, is that without a, a renewed focus or an invigorated focus on alternative ways of providing care, alternatives to fee-for-service, um, we, we can talk about how it gets funded all we want. We're not necessarily going to reform delivery. So uh, hopefully the, the fellow healthcare nerds uh, in Washington uh, hold a little sway and, and we're able to make an impact there. But that's just my idealism. <laughs> well, so I think, you know, and, and, and to get to that, Republicans... If you, if you strip this down to just like bare essentials, one of the biggest beefs Republicans had about ACA was that it appeared that we were making a decision to pump untold billions and billions of dollars into the system to make the provider community happy in the hopes that they would then come to the table and say, okay, now that we know there's a funding stream, we'll work with you on reform. And that never happened. And here we are today. Uh, So shifting gears slightly toward uh, mergers, uh, and any number of us in the room have been involved in healthcare mergers at any given time, our companies or or even some of us, our livelihoods. And uh, the signals have been at best mixed over the years in terms of uh, what Washington says and what Washington does on mergers. So the Affordable Care Act Uh, The founding fathers and mothers of the ACA talked about openly consolidation being a logical result and goal of the ACA to drive efficiencies and get our health care spend down from the 18% of GDP that it is, while our outcomes lag those of comparable wealthy nations. Uh, And yet, the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice, who are the enforcement arms on M&A activity, uh, were quick to say, well, there's no carve out for antitrust review for uh, there's no Obamacare defense. That's what people want to refer to it as. Um, there were a couple of cases back and forth asserting an Obamacare defense, one involving the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Uh, but by and large, the antitrust authorities have been resistant to allowing consolidation uh, to enable some of the ACA's goals. And in fact, uh, we had a, some recent commentary from uh, the head of CMS that uh, consolidation is not a good thing for consumers. Kate, you want to comment on that? Right. Um, so we were discussing CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, recently released an RFI just asking for people's uh, thoughts about ways that the uh, the Innovation Center could study uh, consolidation and, and uh really figure out where the the, uh, the Innovation Center should put its resources as it's looking for future uh, research projects. And one thing that she mentioned at the very bottom of a paragraph was that 
Occasionally, the unintended consequence of our policies is that it's driven this consolidation when, in fact, that's not good for consumers. And it almost seems like a throwaway line, especially where it falls in this particular editorial. And yet, uh, I think that it, it's a fundamental change and shift and reaction to what you said, which is, you know, the Democrats were openly saying that consolidation was good and it was going to drive change and reduce health spending, and it hasn't. And so it's now the Republicans' turn to say, well, maybe you were wrong and we're going to try it our way. So I, I think there's different um, flavors of consolidation in healthcare. The mammoth insurance company mergers, a uh, couple of which have been rejected by antitrust authorities, would be one category, uh, hospital mergers being another, and then the um, myriad physician organizations consolidating amongst themselves or being acquired by hospitals um, or even in some private equity roll-up type transactions. So um, it will be very interesting to see, I for one you know, can't hazard a guess, what this administration will do in terms of setting the tone for some of this consolidation. I, I think the, you know, the argument for consolidation that is pro-consumer in healthcare is out there. You know, we're incredibly splintered, uh, but when you have uh, hospitals that come together and then potentially could increase what they're charging in regions where there are no alternatives, that's a tricky situation. I would argue that um, entering into an accord with the appropriate antitrust authorities that prevents that sort of merger from raising prices in the five, six, seven years after other than cost of living increases um, would allow driving of efficiencies while not being against the consumer. Um, perhaps that's what they will, what the, the Innovation Center will start to look at. Um, you know, they certainly are focused on consumer choice as uh, a primary target for, uh, for, for the Innovation Center. And so making sure, and that, you know, that's not just for, for Medicare and Medicaid. And uh, I think that it spans the entire uh, health system. You know, just as, a, as an aside, uh, you know, we talk a lot about veterans health care. Uh, in in our office, and it, the, the entirety of the of the question around veterans health care right now is around choice. Uh, you know, they have a fully consolidated, uh, closed healthcare system, and it isn't working. And so they're now allowing for veterans to opt out of that and find providers in their community. And it's an interesting experiment, and one that I think that Congress will learn from. Um, but perhaps this is the type of, of, uh, of project that the Innovation Center is looking for to try and figure out if, if that's, if that's a, an appropriate assumption. So a favorite uh, hot topic, drug prices. Um, it seems that you know, folks on both sides of the aisle um, like to, to use this as a, a political um, whipping boy of sorts or, you know, a, a, a horse that continues to get beaten and yet uh, change doesn't appear to be on the horizon or not. Um, Barry, Kate, your thoughts well, on I, drug you prices? Know, um, Kate mentioned what's called the voterama, which is taking place right now when the Senate votes on the budget bill, the way the rules are constructed, senators can offer any amendment on any topic they want. And the way it's devolved over the past several decades is that each side puts up hundreds of political amendments trying to get fodder for their campaign ads for the next go-around. That's what's happening right now. One of the ads, which, I mean, amendments, <laughs> that was put up, offered uh, by Senator McCain, was a drug reimportation from Canada. Uh, 
So it's it's not going to go away. The president, um, Pharma, tends to be a, a favorite recurring whipping boy. And um, the past couple of years have not been good for Pharma when it comes to the way they've handled some of their public crises. So I think this is going to stay front and center. And the debate over U.S. safety versus um, cost of development and cost of fighting off trial lawyers versus cost to consumers, that, that just reeks of 2018 battle lines. Now, to that point, um, I think uh, two things. One, it is far too early to have this conversation. The speed at which we move our attention these days, especially in this particular administration, it, uh, an issue this populist needs to be saved for next summer. Um, and I think that that's exactly what's happening. I think that um, you know that we continue to have hearings and we continue to have activity on the Hill and uh, the president is meeting with pharma execs and there might be an executive order issued and it's imminent and it's coming any day now. But the reality is for this to really be a campaign issue, it needs to fall a little bit more closely with the campaign. So I think we're waiting for it to be the appropriate time. That being said, at any moment, we could get another story about a drug that is going to cost a million dollars per treatment. Um, and at that point, we will be forced to have these conversations again. And I think you will see that you're right. This is an issue that's not going to go away. Con consensus could come together pretty quickly if uh, someone lights a, a match to the powder keg. That's right. Well, um, we love to in include you guys and have the audience participation time. Uh, we also want to include a, a couple of questions. so. Uh, not question, not statements, but questions, because um, we have exhausted our short amount of time. Uh, so, burning questions from the audience. We answered them all, or perhaps it's no, too there combinated. We go. Yes, Sharon O'Hara. Yeah, you didn't talk about Medicaid and where you think that may end up landing from a federal perspective. Well, one of, one of, again, geeking out, the Votorama amendments was by Bernie Sanders to add $1 trillion to the budget geared directly towards Medicaid. I uh, like how you say trillion dollars. Trillion it feels like it's dollars. <laughs> Obviously, it's not going to pass. But, you know, this is where, you know, my home state is Ohio and where Governor Kasich decided to take the bulls by, bull by the horn and go for it. You know, then Governor Pence did the same kind of thing. So I think I follow the Medicaid stuff into this issue of these governor races um, because, again, that population that we're talking about in the exchanges are the ones that are most, you would say normally, most at risk of falling into a Medicaid um, strata. And so governors are going to have to be really concerned about that as they go forward if the payments don't continue. And this is a piggyback question. Chip funding, are they going to be able to work out the formula to states in terms of So to restate the question for the podcast yeah. uh, and the balance of the room, uh, chip funding, are they going to be able to work out the formula? They are. The, the, the activity is ongoing. Um, the, the policies are, are basically uh, agreed upon both in the House and the Senate, and uh, both of those bills have been crafted. 
the, the pay-fors, the, the formula and how they're going to be distributed, I think um, you know, th that's always the difficult portion. And if we've learned anything, it's that if you want to do something that's going to cause pain to someone else or uh, perhaps to an industry, uh, you don't let it sit out there for a very long period of time. There isn't the time or the momentum to move CHIP right now by itself, and so I think you won't see the the, the final uh, pay-for package until they're ready to move it, but it will get done. I believe that it will get done, um, if, if not before the December 8th uh, ex uh, CR um, expires, I think that you will at least you know see it in that same time frame. Uh, there's a lot of activity going on lobbying members uh, on behalf of their states who are saying that they are you know, very concerned. Uh, some states have already run out of their funding. Some states are going to be forced uh, to pay this clawback for some of the money that they have been able to save uh, in order to, to continue to fund the CHIP program. So it's, it's definitely a, an issue of concern. It just hasn't had the opportunity to rise to the top just yet. Mm -hmm. One last question. I saw your hand first. Question calls for uh, prognosis on Medicare for all and how soon something might pass. Well, from a logistical perspective, uh, Medicare for all will never be a, a proposal that is considered by the Republicans. So as long as the Republicans hold the majority, uh, there won't be a bill that has Medicare for all in it that comes up for a vote. So I think that you know, if, you, if you're looking years out, several election cycles out, are we getting to a place where we go for the full enchilada, so to speak? I don't know. I tend to uh, uh, agree with, with Barry that the activity is going to be a little bit more incremental, and not for all, uh, but maybe for some. So uh, before I let our panelists off the hook, I, I want to thank them for flying out from Washington, D.C. and all the continuous action there. Uh, and then I want to put them on the spot because we always go on record here. This is uh, my personal little fun moment to ask you guys your answer to question four. In four years, the Affordable Care Act will be going strong as is, still the law of the land with tweaks, repealed and replaced, or uh, replaced by Medicare for all. Well, Kate? I just said not Medicare for all, so I, I, I know I can't go there. Um, you know, I think I think we're going to be somewhere between B and, and C. I, I think without the, uh, the the 2017 proposals part, I might lean a little toward little more towards C. Um, but you know, I, I do think that there will the the framework is there. Um, you know, it's very much like the the financial system designed by Alexander Hamilton. It's very hard to dismantle, um, and and Thomas Jefferson tried. So I think that it's in our it's in our country's DNA at this point. Will it continue to look the way that it does now? Probably not. Um, you know, even Democrats will tell you that there are a lot of improvements that they would like to see to the to the overall law. Um, but certainly, I think that there was enough pushback on most of the proposals that we saw this summer um, that Republicans, if they want to move forward with repealing and replacing the ACA, might decouple it from some of the Medicaid reforms uh, and try to move it forward again. Right. And this is, and I agree with Kate, it's, it, it lies somewhere between B and C. And this is a classic example of where words matter. So if, if you're Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi, there is no way you can sit at the table with Republicans as long as repeal 
is part of the process. And it's sort of like for President Trump, there's no way that he can engage in a discussion about immigration law and security without the wall being part of that discussion. And the truth is on both sides. As Kate said about uh, uh, where the Democrats stand on ACA, I mean, it, was, it wasn't even a dirty little secret. I mean, everybody knew if Secretary Clinton had been elected, there would have been major rewrite of ACA. And just and Republicans knew if Donald Trump got elected, there was going to be a major rewrite of ACA. And it's going to be the same thing this, this go around. There, there is a major rewrite because it has to happen. There's clearly areas that are working. There are clearly areas that need improvement. And there are clearly areas that are just utter failures. And if the U.S. government is going to continue to insert itself in health care, it has to step up and, you know, fix what it, whether it was well-intentioned or not, what they did in 2010. We'll let Barry have the last word. Uh, thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.